What's going on here? Why, Michael? I thought you'd never ask. You see, these aliens come from outer space, and they want to make us slaves in their theme park. Eh, what do we care? They're little, so we challenge them to a basketball game. But then they show up, and they ain't so little. They're huge! We need to beat these guys, because they're talking about slavery. They're going to make us do stand-up comedy, the same jokes, every night for all eternity. We're going to be hunting up like wild animals, and then trotted out to perform for a bunch of low-brow, bug-eyed, fat-headed, human-challenged aliens. What I'm trying to say is... We need your help! Yeah, but I'm a baseball player now. Right. And I'm a Shakespearean actor. <laughs> Straight out of God's country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K-Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? It's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson, coming out of Pauly's Island, South Carolina. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Holler if you hear me, half man, half podcast machine. Want to welcome everyone in to yet another scintillating, fantastic edition of Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Uh, and this is your first time in the hood, and you like what you hear here. I hope you'll join my family of dysfunctional seam heads by... Subscribing and following BKP. Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. I'm all tangled up in the web. Seek and you shall find. If you're a listener on uh, Spotify or Apple platforms, please remember to rate and review. I ain't scared. It's like my boy Anakin out in the charm used to always tell me if you're scared, if you're scared, go get a fucking dog, Pookie. So please, by all means, rate and review me as you see fit. As all that kind of stuff, it kind of helps the show grow. I promise to never charge the greatest baseball podcast audience ever for this content. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing, never going to nickel and dime you, especially in today's economy. I'll find another way to uh, generate streams, but look, it starts with subscriptions, follows, downloads, rates, and reviews. So, hook a good brother up. You can contact the show on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast or... On Facebook or YouTube at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I've already covered over 160 years of baseball from Moses Fleetwood Walker all the way up to Shohei Otani here at BKP. And now I'm working on everything in between. So you can check out my Vault of Archives at my website on diamondsnakej.podbean.com. And with that being said, I think I covered everything here. It's, you know, look, that's not really my favorite part of the show, but 
Somebody's got to pay the fucking bills around here. But if that's everything, and I believe it is, let's start this train up and let's take a trip back to almost 30 years ago when arguably one of the greatest basketball players to ever lace up a pair of kicks was thoroughly, thoroughly dominating the National Basketball Association. And he decided it was done. He was done with basketball and he wanted to give baseball a shot. That's right. This week we're going to be discussing Michael Jordan playing baseball. Our story this week, let's begin it in Barcelona, Spain, 1992 at the Olympics. The United States is still smarting from being robbed of a gold medal by the Soviets at the Munich Summer Olympics in 1972. Um... They're watching 20 years of these other countries kind of sending their much older, mostly professional basketball players to the Olympics to complete, compete with American college players. In 1980, the U.S. boycotted the Olympics located in Moscow. In the 1984 Summer Olympics held in Los Angeles, California, the Americans sent their last great collegiate team to the show, and they dominated the field. But that field did not include the Soviets or the Eastern Bloc countries that the Soviets enslaved back then. Uh, They were now boycotting the games played on American soil. But it is interesting to note that Eastern Bloc Yugoslavia, they gave the Soviets the finger, defied the boycott, and they actually won bronze in that Olympics. The American team was led by All-Americans Patrick Ewing, Michael Jordan, Wayman Tisdale, Sam Perkins... Coach Bobby Knight. And many consider that, I certainly do, one of the strongest American amateur basketball teams ever, if not the strongest. In the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, uh, South Korea, the bottom fell out in the United States amateur basketball. I mean, well, not really, but they finished tied with the best record in the tournament. But the Americans would limp home with a bronze medal, their lowest finish ever at this point. And not only did they finish in third, but it was losing to the Soviet squad of grown professional men that dropped the team out of gold and silver medal contention. So let's keep track of the score here, right? 1972, USA basketball gets jobbed out of a gold medal. The Americans on that team, they never claim their silvers. They are forever locked away in a vault in Sweden somewhere. Nobody wants a silver when you earn a gold. In 1976, the Americans win the gold, but they don't get a chance to face the Soviets, who finished third uh, that year. In 1980, Moscow had their party, and nobody here was going there. Eight years later, the last great college team rolls through the tournament with the Soviet, without the Soviets, they're now boycotting us. So in 1988, after not playing each other since the 1972 fix, you got these grown-ass Soviet men who played with each other for years, uh, beating down our college kids who were led by Dan Marley and Georgetown coach John Thompson. And quite honestly, enough was enough. This is silly. Uh, it was time to put the Soviets and the rest of the world in their, no- in their place and on notice. People began to ask a simple question. Why are we still sending our college kids to play grown-ass pros? 
with the Soviet Union collapsing in on itself around this time into a bunch of different countries, the U.S. begins to form the Dream Team. Now, some people will ask you, well, which one are you talking about when you mention the word Dream Team? And folks, God damn it! there's only one Dream Team, and that's the first one that played in Barcelona in 1992, okay? There is no Dream Team 2, 3, 4, whatever. I don't even know what it's up to now. There's only one, and that's the first one. Behind the play of Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Charles Barker, Carmelo, John Stockton, Chris Mullen, Pat Ewing, Michael Jordan. I mean, that team was just loaded. The Americans reestablished their dominance on the sport of basketball, and they easily won the gold. They didn't even call a timeout once in that 20. That 1972 Olympics that still sits in the crawl of many folks here, and certainly at that time, it was good to see the U.S. reassert herself as the preeminent basketball power. It was also good to see the Soviets shrivel under the call of freedom by their Eastern Bloc slaves and the disastrous results of their invasion of Afghanistan and what toll it took on their collapsing economy. And 1992 was also a whirlwind year for Michael Jeffrey Air Jordan. He has led his Bulls to back-to-back titles over the Lakers and the Trailblazers. And now, here is the most dynamic piece on the greatest ensemble team ever assembled. Chicago reporter Sam Smith, who wrote the bestseller Jordan Rules book and followed him extensively, he asked Michael in his Barcelona hotel room, are you okay? You, you, you kind of look exhausted. And Michael was honest. He said he was exhausted. He felt stretched out, way too thin. What he really needed was rest. But he felt an obligation and an honor to be on this team instead of relaxing back home. He then said something that made Sam pause. And Michael said to him, by next year at this time, I'm going to retire and go play baseball. And an incredulous Sam says, well, why are you waiting a year? And Michael responded by saying, look, Magic and Larry, they never won a three-point, three-peat, so I got to have that over them. And he could see the cultural and international impact he could have on the game by competing in the Olympics. So he was pot committed on the Olympics. So right now, it didn't work. So... Wrapping this up, for a two and a half year span, Michael plays 26 months of basketball. By the end of the Dream Team Tour, Michael goes straight into the 1992-93 NBA season. And he's running on fumes from the beginning. But he was focused and he was goal-driven on getting this three-peat accomplished. And of course, like Sean Carter says, I'm psycho. Lob and go, Michael. Take your pick. Jackson, Tyson, Jordan, game six. Ball so hard, kind of broke, clock. (laughs) Look, they get to the finals against the Suns. Game six, the Bulls come out the gate white hot, but by the fourth, Chicago is exhausted. All of them, they're tired. As Charles Barkley, he really did have a great series that, that year. That people always talk about he, how he didn't win a ring. Well, it wasn't because of him in 93. I mean, he gave it his everything. They came roaring back from a double-digit deficit to now lead 
And sometimes in the crunch, that first three-peat Bulls team, they had a tendency to stand around and watch Michael instead of continuing in the fight. The Bulls only scored 12 points in the fourth quarter of that 1993 NBA Final Game 6. The first nine were scored by Michael. And Dan Marley, whom I mentioned earlier, the 88 Olympic team, he drilled a 30-footer, a three-pointer to put the Suns up 98-96 with one possession clock. Phil Jackson not like what, liking what he's seeing. Certainly not overwhelmed with the idea of playing Game 7 back here in the desert tomorrow. He calls a timeout. And in the huddle, he calls for a play called Blind Pig. A play predicated on up-tempo three-quarter uh, basketball with triangular motion and swinging passes. And on the other bench, Suns coach Paul Westfall tells his guys, don't double-team anyone, not even 23. And while Jackson's play worked to perfection, something went wrong in the execution for the Suns' play. Danny Ainge collapsed off his guard counterpoint counterpart, John Paxson, and he doubles down on Horace Grant. Either, I don't know, maybe it was an effort to steal the ball from Horace or put his horrific free-throw shooting ass on a charity stripe. Either way... Westfall was right. Horace, who used to wear these uh, goggles the size of inner tubes, he saw a wide-open John Paxson playing with himself all alone in the, beyond the perimeter there. He zipped him a perfect pass. And the shooting guard out of Notre Dame, booyah, nothing but the bottom of the net. Putting the balls up 99-98 seconds later, the balls would make their three-peat goal official. When Horace Grant blocked a last-second prayer for the Suns point guard, Kevin Johnson. And for the third straight time, Michael had won chips and series MVP awards. He had accomplished every goal he had set for himself. So, Jordan took his first three rings and his Olympic medal. And he went home to Wilmington, North Carolina for some much-needed relaxation. And also, some even more needed soul-searching to figure out... What is next for Michael Jordan? One person that Michael could always lean on was his father and confidant James. His father was his best friend and his rock while growing up in North Carolina. And he couldn't wait to just sit down with his old man and talk about anything other than fucking basketball or the NBA. Unfortunately, a month after the NBA Finals... Um, James Jordan goes missing for three weeks. And as each day goes by, without the whereabouts of Mr. Jordan being known, the media is in a frenzy. And his body was eventually found face down in a creek in McCall, South Carolina, three weeks later, after having been shot in the chest. Uh, His red Lexus SC400 had been found with a smashed windfield uh, windshield, 60 miles away in Fayetteville, North Carolina. James Jordan, the father of Bulls superstar Michael Jordan, has not been seen for three weeks. His car was found stripped and hidden in some woods near Fayetteville, North Carolina. The car, a red Lexus, was missing the license plates. It was battered. The windows were broken out. You know, we try to backtrack what his actions were. 
he left a certain day. He was driving back. He just got tired. He said, I'm driving. He pulled off and he just took a nap. Next thing you know, you know, things happen the way they happen. Good day. We're coming on the air now with word that the body of James Jordan has been found in a creek near the border between South and North Carolina. Investigator said Jordan was driving late at night when he pulled off the road to take a nap. And he was awakened, and at that time he was shot once in the chest. Two 18-year-old men are charged with the robbery and murder of James Jordan. And the authorities, they deduced that uh, James was on his way home from a funeral. I uh, was a little bit tipsy and had a couple drinks. He pulled over to take a nap. And he wasn't even targeted, as police call it, just this random act of violence. Uh, the death devastated Michael. And for two months, Michael tried to mourn with his family outside of the public eye. But as with all things Michael Jordan in those days... Nothing was private. Everything about Air Jordan was on display for public consumption back then. I, 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 I just can't explain it. Everything. On September 5th, 1993. I'm sorry, October 5th, 1993. I knew that didn't sound right. The Toronto Blue Jays are about to take on the Chicago White Sox in Game 1 of the 1993 ALCS. Michael's invited to throw out the first pitch, let the record show. He threw a perfect strike from the top of the bump. After his pitch, he joined his family and his private box to watch the game. And as the game was moving along in the early innings, people inside Comiskey Recall, there was like this buzz going around the stadium. At first, it was inaudible. Then as the rumors are moving around the stadium, each fan in the ballpark was hearing something that just couldn't possibly true. Just couldn't, you know, it just couldn't be true. Michael Jordan's about to retire? Is, is that what that guy said? All of a sudden, the media is trying to get access to MG's private box. So he and his family dip out. And actually, this was no surprise to White Sox and Bulls owner Jerry Reinsdorf, who was kind of cornered at a golf charity event less than a month before by Michael's agent, David Falk. And David Falk gave him the news that Michael wants to retire. He's, he's, he's going to retire. And after hearing this news from Jordan's agent, Reinsdorf goes to Bulls GM Jay Krause and gives him the news. And at first, Jerry is thinking, you know, Reinsdorf here is busting my balloons or something. Let's not even joke about Michael retiring, you know. But Reinsdorf assures Jerry, this is no joke. This is for real. Michael is retiring from the NBA, and we're meeting Monday morning to discuss it at my office. So that's when Krause says, well, if that's what he wants to do, so be it, but... Make sure he talks to Phil before it's official. So, Monday comes. Reinsdorf makes sure that uh, Phil Jackson is in the building. And he sits down with Michael privately. And Michael tells him, look, I'm tired. I got nothing left to prove. I'm tired of living under this microscope. I just don't have that fire and passion right now. And Reinsdorf recalls that not once... Did Jordan mention his father's horrific murder, but the heaviness of the moment and the loss. It was a subconscious reminder to the men, 
between the two men of the facts that, that lay thick over that room. Michael was hurting. He was a human being in internal turmoil. Red flesh and blood, not the guy you see on TV, a real human being in pain. And Rodsdorf wished him luck. And, and he asked Michael to do one thing. Go talk to Phil Jackson about your decision. I back you 100%, no matter what you want to do in life. And uh, maybe Jared was expecting Coach Phil to be able to talk him out of it. But as Phil once said, I, I can never talk Michael out of doing anything he wants to do. You know, whatever he wants to do, he's going to do it. And again, Michael and Phil sat down and Michael laid it all out again. The sit-down lasted for about an hour and a half. It ended with hugs and tears, and, and that was it. The curtain of his nine-year NBA career had fallen. And on April 6th, I'm sorry, October 6th, one of the greatest players who ever lived retired at the height of his powers. I just felt I was being engulfed by the success that I've gathered at that time. And then my father passed, so, you know, it was the last straw. I've heard a lot of different speculations about my reasons for not playing, but I've always stressed to people that have known me and the media that has followed me that when I lose uh, the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. I've always said that I would never let you guys run me out the game. So don't think uh, that you've done that. This is my choice. Right now, I've been on this roller coaster for nine years. It's just time for me to ride something else. And it really was one of those remember where you were sports moments for my generation. For one moment, you really got to see the full scope of Michael Jordan as a man, not as a celebrity athlete, as a man. And the press conference, it was to me, it was poignant. It was a display of his type A makeup. He was charismatic, thoughtful. He was funny. He was petty. Inside there was struggle. He was angry. But I could see he was hopeful. And I, I thought it was just for peace at the time. But, but looking back 30 years into research... He was probably most hopeful of something else. In late 93, early 94, Michael says Jerry Reinsdorf, he wants to try to become a Major League Baseball player. And now Jerry is even more flabbergasted than he was a few months back when uh, Michael retired from the NBA. Never once did he say to Michael, this is crazy, you can't do it. He learned a long time ago, when you tell this man he can't, it becomes like this personal battle of wills. But he does tell Michael, it's a very hard sport. Are you sure you want to do this? And why do you want to do it? And without hesitation, Michael tells Jerry how his father had always wanted him to be a baseball player. In fact, Michael's brother Larry and his friends, they all figured that Michael would in fact be the baseball player in the family. After all, I mean, Larry used to whip Michael's ass in basketball back in the day. Michael had no answer for him. Michael excelled at baseball, and that, that was going to be his sport when he was a kid. So Michael Schwartz Ronsdorf, th this isn't a gimmick. I intent, I'm intent on playing baseball, and since Reindorf owns the White Sox, 
and his family has settled in Chicago already. Maybe you can give me a shot. Reinsdorf loved Michael and watched Sydney. I mean, he did so much for the city of Chicago. The best NBA player in Chicago Pools history before Michael was, oh, I don't know, probably Reggie Theus or Bob Love or whoever. There wasn't much going on for the Bulls before Michael came along. So Reinsdorf, of course, he obliges. He begins working Mike out indoors because of the brutal Chicago weather. And he invites White White Sox scouts to uh, to come run him through some fielding, hitting, and running drills. And the reviews were mixed, but mostly passive-aggressively negative. <laughs> He's a great athlete, but his age, his inexperience, his uh, seriousness, they, they were all, and probably fairly questioned. No, definitely fairly questioned. But Michael was steely-eyed and determined. Reinsdorf had seen that look before. He signed Michael to a minor league deal. Now, years later, we find out that the Oakland A's were not only willing to sign Michael Jordan to a major league deal, but he would have every opportunity to play on opening day in an A's uniform on the major league level. Their front office, they contacted Falk, but Jordan turned it down because, one, He wouldn't have probably earned that spot, and that would make it the gimmick that everybody was saying it was. And two, he had no interest in uprooting his family from Chicago and moving them out to the West Coast of Oakland. Around this time, the media starts talking about these cockamamie reasons for why Michael really isn't playing basketball. And they're mostly salty New York Columbo detectives. They begin sprout, uh, spouting this horse shit that his father died because of Michael's gambling. And then, you know, then it was, oh, Commissioner Stern had to secretly suspend him because, uh, why again? It was just one stupid theory after another stupid theory with zero proof. All circumstantial horseshit. Not even 20 years, nine years later. There's never been proof that's been brought forward. Nothing but haters and speculation. As Bob Costas uh, once said, not one person on this planet has enough evidence to fill a thimble that shows Michael was suspended or his dad died because of his behavior somehow. It was disgusting journalism back then. But look, today it's the norm. All you got to do is go on social media for, you know, this type of horse shit every day here in 2022. I'm not paid to tell you what I think. I'm paid to tell you what I know. And what I know is there is no 30-year-old secrets in the NBA. All those stories were fake news. Show me the evidence. Till then, we move right on past this cruel and petty saltiness. The truth is, I believe Michael had his word. Why shouldn't I? He was feeling trapped. And after his father's death, he, he wanted to do what he wanted to do, not what these dumbass sports writers wanted him to do. As far as Michael was concerned, his best friend, his father, had already told him it was okay to play basketball before he was killed. And that's all he needed to know. So, in March of 1994, the greatest basketball player on the planet, he reports to spring training in Sarasota, Florida. The crowds were humongous, 
as everyone wants to get a piece and a glimpse of Michael wearing White Sox gear. And Michael would stick around in Sarasota for the month trying to learn on the fly. And he wasn't that good. He didn't look that good. He was missing a lot of pitches. But he was trying. It reminds me of that commercial that came out. He ain't no Roger, or he ain't no uh, Stan Musil. And Stan Musil's like, yeah, but he's trying. <laughs> in April, the White Sox and the Cubs, they had a city rivalry exhibition game at Wrigley Field, and Michael Jordan was extended an invitation to play in a game with real major leaguers in the friendly friendly confines in a game that was played annually from 1985 to 1995 before there was interleague. And Jordan would start the game in right field, bat six for the Sox. In the second inning, a lazy fly ball is caught by Jordan and the crowd goes nuts. Even the Cubs fans were cheering loudly. And folks, if you ask me, the Cubs-White Sox rivalry, it's one of the most contentious interleague rivalries around. I think it's even more so than the Yankees and the Mets. You know, just just go look at uh, Barnett and uh, Pierzynski fighting at home plate. It is a real uh, angry angry rivalry between those two. But the Cubs fans, they're actually cheering for a White Sox player. Because, after all, the North Side and the South Side, they may have their baseball loyalties, but all of Chicago loves Michael and the Bulls. Later in the game, Jordan commits an error by dropping a uh, can of corn fly ball, and the White Sox and their Cubs the fans, they began chanting, Rocky, Rocky. Can, can you imagine, oh, the indignity of those rat bastards. What, what, what? <laughs> oh, the humanity. And his first at bat at Wrigley, the whole stadium's on their feet. Uh, Michael gets a green light on a 3-0 pitch, and he pops it up. It's a meatball uh, of a fastball, center cut, popped it up. And his second at bat, with the Cubs up 4 to nothing, Michael slams a single down the first base line for an RBI. And with the score now 4-1, to one, Michael's third at bat produced a walk. He then gets the second on a pass ball, and then he scores on a home run. So, with the Cubs clinging to this 4-3 lead and, you know, Wrigley is rocking. Michael comes to the plate in the 8th inning with a man on 2nd. He's handled a couple of chances well. He made an there on a ground ball. Got a base hit that drove in the run. There's another hit. A drive down the third base line. The tie run made score. He's around third. Racing by the plate. The throw. He hasn't touched the plate yet, and he does. Michael Jordan has tied up the ball game with a ground double to left. And this crowd has seen what it came here for. And everybody's on their feet yelling. 
And you, you can hear it, man. Wrigley is rocking. Harry Carey, that's him on the call. Uh, you know, we all know he bled Cubs blue. Uh, he didn't care. He's doing shots of rum and cartwheels in the press box. And actually, both sides go home happy as the 37,825 people, like uh, Harry Carey said in that clip, they came to see what they came, they came to see what they came to say. And, uh, the Cubs and the Sox would play that game to a 4-4 tie in the 10th inning. And Michael finished the game 2-3 for three with a walk, two RBIs, and a run scored. So now the real work was to begin. As Michael Jordan, premier NBA player, was sent to Birmingham, Alabama to suit up with the White Sox affiliate Barons to begin double-A baseball on April 8th. Barron's GM, Bill Hanekop. He received a call in the morning informing him that Jordan would be reporting there the next day. And after picking his heart up off the floor, he drove into Hoover uh, Met Stadium, the former home of the Barron's. And as he gets out of the car, he notices two cars coming in the parking lot that, you know, he knows these aren't employee cars. So as he's walking towards the office in the stadium, the occupants of the cars, they get out, and they ask him, where can they purchase tickets at? And from that point on, it was a steady flow of walk-ups all the way in to the midnight hour. Uh, you know, just fans purchasing game tickets. And it was then that the GM had a real understanding about the celebrity power of Michael Jordan. Before MJ came along, the Barons had six phone lines. By the first day, they realized that ain't enough. And they doubled that. Uh, Hancock recalls how as soon as you hung a phone up, it would instantly ring with another caller. On that first day, Barron's manager, Tito Francona, sent world-renowned hitting guru Walt Riniak to go out and talk to Mike. And uh, Riniak... No-nonsense fucking guy. I mean, this guy lives, eats, breathes, hitting baseballs. That's all he cares about. He gets into the outfield and he asks Michael one question. Are you serious about this? And Walt said, Michael looked him in the eye and said, dead serious. To which Riniak said, okay, meet me at the cage at 7.30 in the morning. Don't be late. If you're late, you don't get to swing the bat. And that became the routine as Michael Jordan, now donning number 45, was chasing down a dream to play in the majors like the rest of his teammates. As Tito explains it, it was like a whole other world with Michael on the team. The year before, no one outside of Birmingham knew where this place was. You never saw national media here. Uh, The year Jordan played there, the national press was there almost every night. Uh, The year before, Mike, the games were rarely televised. This year... With Mike, they had a full slate of Barron's games on the tube. And even the golf courses Tito played on were upgraded the year with 45 on the team. Internally, Tito was learning some things about Michael. He was impressed with his character, first of all. Any thought Francona may have had about Mike doing this as some kind of self-promotion was thrown out the window immediately as he took notice firsthand of the legendary work ethic of Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Every morning, Michael Riniak would race to get to the batting cage first. Michael would hit the curveball machine every morning at 7.30 a.m. sharp. 
Then go to the team batting practice. Go to lunch. Then hit some more off the curveball machine to around four or so. You know, depending on the time of the game. He would play the game, sign autographs, then hit the cage again after the game. So deep into the night. Even the players who were skeptical of Michael in the beginning, they began to come around as they realized Michael was serious in his attempts to make the majors, make this team, and to learn how to play baseball. Michael would later reveal his hands had fucking blisters all over the palms from swinging that bat 300 times a day. It was also around this time that Sports Illustrated came out with an article about Michael playing baseball in spring training. On the cover art was artwork of Michael Jordan missing a ball badly while swinging the bat with the headline screaming, Bag it, Michael! Jordan and the White, White Sox are embarrassing baseball. In the article, the writer, Stephen Wolf he gets on his self-righteous and mostly pious high horse. And he basically says that this is all a joke and a farce. Michael is delusional. And the White Sox are to blame for somehow enabling Michael's behavior. And not once did that guy sit down with Michael to get his personal insight about his sincerity. Michael has never done anything with Sports Illustrated since that day. They've tried to uh, apologize a year later, but they've had him on the cover since then. But uh, MJ don't do SI, baby. Just another embarrassing example and display of the outright awful journalism that was going on back then. And a lot of people forget, uh, after game one, of his minor league career. Well, game one, he went 0 for 3 with two strikeouts. But after that, Michael Jordan went on a legitimate 15-game hitting streak. No one ever talks about that. Now, folks, look. I believe hitting a thrown round object with a round stick consistently is the hardest thing to do, not only in sports, but in life. Put it this way. If you saw an alien land on the fucking planet and explain the physics of hitting a baseball to him, He'd probably tell you uh, politely to get the fuck out of here. Or, you know, he'd kidnap you, probe you. I I don't really know what aliens do with people. But I know he wouldn't buy into that shit. The the mere physics of it is silly. So the fact that this guy who hasn't swung a bat since he was 17 is now 32 years old on a 15-game hitting streak at double-A ball playing with and against legitimate prospects knocking on the MLB door, to me, that's absolutely amazing. I don't even care what he did for the rest of the year. That shows that he has aptitude. After an amazing first month, the pitchers, they you know, in the league, they begin to share their pitch charts with one another, and they put out the word, don't give him any fastballs inside the strike zone until he proves he can hit off-speed uh, pitches and breaking balls. And that's what the pitchers did as Michael began spiraling downward for the next month and, you know, three weeks. Uh, you know, just brutal at bats. Seven weeks of just brutal at bats. Uh, he began to get a diet, a steady diet of sliders, curves, change-ups that, you know, like dived into the ground like kamikaze pilots. 
And the uber competitive microwave began swinging at all of them. You know, he started developing these bad habits. He was determined to show his teammates, the fans, and all his fucking haters he could hit breaking pitches. So he's swinging at all of them, and he's, it's not helping him by, by this kind of approach. It was only when his teammates began quizzing him between at-bats in the dugout did he fully appreciate how much he has to learn. During that slump, teammate Kenny Coleman would ask him, what pitch did you see in that at-bat? And in the beginning, his pitch recognition was horrible, as he couldn't discern the difference between a two-seam fastball and a four-seamer. And Tito can recall the slump was beginning to wear him down. But at the same time, he was amazed at how Michael was learning from his mistakes and refusing to give up. And he continued to work hard. He began to slowly recognize breaking balls. The difference between a tight, harder-to-hit breaking pitch and that hanging dead fish just waiting out there, just waiting to be cooked out there. He was reading them, and he was now waiting on his pitch, not afraid to go deep into counts. And with about three weeks left in the season, he began coming out of that slump, and he was coming out strong. He wasn't just hitting blue pits anymore. He was getting baseball strong, and he was driving pitches to the gap. Not only was Mike now performing on the field, he was really making the effort to ingratiate himself into the community and in the clubhouse. Michael insisted that the team ride in comfort, and he helped secure a promotion with Thrasher Bus Company. Uh, the state of the bus, the bus, it had all the bells and whistles on it for the team, and it was adorned with a Michael Jordan autograph on the bus. And for the first time in a long time since his father had died, Michael felt like he was not the guy, and he was just a guy. And that was fine with him. While all these other guys are probably like, God damn it, I hate riding these buses, Michael probably loved it. He could sit down with the dudes, play cards, and hang out. And no one treated him like he was ruining. There wasn't cameras all over him. He loved it. All the sadness and heaviness, and how he was like filled with this un-Jordan-like self-doubt, it was all beginning to disappear. Some of the media, again, on their holier-than-thou shit, would argue that MJ was hurting the Barons because he was blocking someone else with a spot. No one in the White Sox front office ever agreed with that statement. Sure, someone would have played right field for the Barons if Michael wasn't there, but he wasn't blocking anyone. Besides, how can he be bad for baseball? He's a rock star. On the road in 1993, the Barons drew over 500,000 people. At home, they drew over 4,000, 400,000. Those are numbers that were never that high before or after Michael played there. Also, it means more scouts. While the scouts were there more likely to see Michael, they also had every chance to see the skills of his teammates and opponents as well. A fact that was never lost on teammate or opponent. And they totally appreciated it. After all, just like Michael, they're all chasing a dream. Now, on July 30th, 1994, Carolina Cat pitcher uh, Kevin Marshall 
he uh, shakes off his pitcher and he appears him for what he's looking for. The book on Jordan, like I said, breaking shit away, don't give him a fastball to zone. And as soon as Kevin Reitzel released that pitch, he wondered to himself why he shook off that catcher and he also thought to himself, this is a mistake. And as the ball is reaching the plate, the 32-year-old double-A right fielder hits a missile out of Hoover Met Stadium in front of 13,371 fans for the first homer in his career. And it was Gonzo Jordan. As the season continued to wind down, uh, Jordan caught fire to end his first year in the minors. The team ended up with a 64-74 record. They finished fifth in the Southern League's West Division. Michael would finish with 127 games under his belt, 46 runs scored, uh, 17 doubles, one triple, 51 RBIs, which was fifth on that team. He led the team with 30 stolen bases. And he finished with a 202, 289, 266 slash. Now, sure, some of those numbers are mediocre. But, again, for a guy that hadn't played competitive baseball for over a decade and a half, to be on double-A level hitting uh, over the Mendoza line, to me, is remarkable. Tito Frantana, uh, Francona agrees, saying, uh, if, if Michael had gotten about a 1,000 more bats, he would have made the pros. Probably not an all-star, but a more than serviceable Peace in someone's outfield. The Barons were, you know, pretty much not a good hitting team uh, overall that year in 1994. They, they only had 40 home runs as a squad, which was the lowest total that year in the Southern AA League. Um, after hitting 265 that first month with that 15 game hitting streak I told you about, he went into a funk. But he began to figure out all three of his dongs came in the last month. He did finish with three home runs, which proves to me he had increased aptitude for the sport. As Tito said, Michael was playing for the right reasons. I knew his intentions and it was pure. He made himself part of of the family in every way and he won over everybody. Michael's strikeout percentage was 22.9% that year, which is higher than the uh, 16.4 league average of that year. But it is in line with today's major leagues that now sports, you know, around 23% of a strikeout percentage. So, if anything, Michael was uh, ahead of his time in that regard. <laughs> and Jordan showed continual growth in the Arizona Fall League, which is a developed. Uh, developmental league, league for usually the top prospects from each team. Uh, dudes who are on the brink of busting MLB's door down. MLG, uh, Mikey would go out there and hit 252 and 123 at bats. Uh, that's better than average in the top pitching league. In retrospect, I, I was looking, Mike Trout, the best player in the game right now, he hit 245 in that same league. Now, I'm not going to sit here and blow smoke up your ass and say MJ would have been an all-star, but all indications are he could have been a legitimate player had he stuck to it. Michael learned life lessons that summer. 
He learned what it was like to be part of the process of playing the hardest team sport in America. He rediscovered his joy for competition. He relearned the hard work it took for him to get there while I was with the Bulls. All that hard work it took to get there, he, he relearned it in the minor leagues. And sometimes you take things for granted when you are the best basketball player on the planet. Jordan admitted that you sometimes forget what it took to get there. And maybe this is the challenge that he needed to get himself back to where he needed to be. Minor League Baseball reminded him, it's hard goddamn work to be the best at anything, Michael. Ultimately, the 1994 baseball strike it, uh, decimated the season. The baseball owners were desperate to go for baseball in 1995. And uh, there was talk of scab replacement players on the MLB level. And that was nothing Michael wanted to be part of. He was a player rep in the NBA. Michael would never entertain the thought of being a scab. So he walked away from baseball forever. The thrill and the competition of that summer, it gave Michael a sense of renewal and his competitive passion. He would return to the NBA, uh, which had to broke uh, Indianapolis and New York Bricks fans' heart because they knew they would never make the finals again with Jordan on the floor. And they were right. And I believe we should just end it there, right? If you want to learn more, you got the last dance out there. Check it out. Episode 7 is dedicated to Michael's time in Birmingham. There's also Jordan Rides the Bus, a documentary on Disney+. Plus. You can check that out. There's a uh, few good things out on the internet as well. You can check out YouTube, all kinds of stuff there. And by all means, I, I always encourage you guys and gals to do your own research and build your own perspective on the story. My perspective is not the gospel, and I always encourage free thinking. Uh, be sure to pass this link around to your Seamhead buddies who haven't had a taste of Backwards K-Pod yet. Remind them, I'm on all podcast platforms. Or come on over to my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to check out the always, always expanding archives. Next week, we'll be talking about the history of the Braves. The, def- uh, the defending world champions are on deck. And I'm going to give you biographies of all these teams in the upcoming months and years. But first, we start with the world champs. But hey, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless. And win the day.